I think that there's necessary pain and, and, and it's like, I've just categorized it for myself. Like there's just pain that you just, you know, losing people or losing dreams or, you know, losing, losing. These are the things, they're just the price you pay for being an open-hearted human being. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every single one of you that come every week to listen, to learn, and to grow. I'm so grateful that our community at this time has stayed strong, that has been supporting their loved ones, and going above and beyond to support your communities, your towns, your cities. I know that all of you have been doing so much incredible work, and I know that you've been taking a lot of joy and a lot of resilience from our incredible guests on On Purpose. And I'm so excited to be talking to you today. I can't believe it. My new book, Eight Rules of Love, is out, and I cannot wait to share it with you. I am so, so excited for you to read this book, for you to listen to this book. I read the audiobook. If you haven't got it already, make sure you go to eightrulesoflove.com. It's dedicated to anyone who's trying to find, keep, or let go of love. So if you've got friends that are dating, broken up, or struggling with love, make sure you grab this book. And I'd love to invite you to come and see me for my global tour, Love Rules. Go to jshettytour.com to learn more information about tickets, VIP experiences, and more. I can't wait to see you this year. Now, today is no different. And I have to say, I'm personally very excited because I've been following this individual for many, many years. And it's a great honor that when I was able to reach out to her on Instagram, it was very, very organic. There was no booking involved or any of that, like all the other guests. Uh, we, we never do that here. We, we want real relationships and real conversations. And I DM'd her and I was hoping that she would see the DM and she responded immediately and we were able to make this happen. So today's guest is none other, the one and only Glennon Doyle, author, activist, founder of Together Rising and the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Untamed, which has been at the top of every bestseller list since its publication on March 10th, and is also Reese Witherspoon's book club selection. She's also the author, which I'm sure you'll know, and if you don't, you should go back and get those two. The author of New York Times bestsellers, Love Warrior, which was Oprah's book club selection, and Carry On Warrior. Now, what I love about Glennon most is her heart of an activist and a thought leader, and she's the founder of Together Rising, right? She's raised over $25 million for women, families, and children in crisis. She lives in Florida, where she's joining with us from today with her wife and three children. And today I'm excited about learning more about how we can all become untamed. Welcome to the show and on purpose, Glennon. Glenn, thank you for being here. Jay, thank you for having me. I'm so excited that this is finally happening. Of yeah. course, I've been following you forever and I just love your heart and you have made the world have a bigger heart and I'm just really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you and I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. I, yeah. I can't wait till all of this has passed and I can fly over there or you're in LA and, and we can sit together and speak more but I'm glad that we're getting to connect at this time and so I, I wanted to start with that actually like how, how have you been managing quarantine with your children and, you know, your wife and have you learned something new at this time or have there been any revelations? Yeah. I mean, one of the revelations is that this much family togetherness cannot be God's plan for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow, Zache. Wow. 
I mean, I would, I would answer that differently every day. Some days I feel so hopeful and I have, you know, all these beautiful ideas about how we're getting to know each other better. And some days I just, wow. I mean, I think it's, it's a hard time, one, because of all of the real pain and loss that is going on in the world. I mean, because of Together Rising, I'm reading people's stories nonstop every day. And it's just unbelievable what people are losing. And this new way of losing that's brand new where we are losing people and then we don't get to go to them. Mm. I mean, wow, that's a whole um, sort of just paradigm shifting experience. And then on top of all of that real pain, I think it's an interesting time because we're dealing with all of that while being stuck, right? Just we're not used to this kind of stuckness. We're used to being able to distract ourselves with all of our busyness and all of our, you know, the stuff we do so that we don't have to sit with what has always been true, which is is unbelievably vulnerable and no one's in control down here. And at the end of the day, we just have, you know, our hearts and each other. Um, But I think we're all, it reminds me a lot of being early sobriety um, Mm. of just, having those moments where, you know, I think of us like snow globes, you know, the snow, we keep ourselves shaken up all the time. I, was ask you, I love that analogy. Go on, Karen. <laughs> yeah. So we don't have to see the thing in the middle, you know, which is the truth of being human and how fragile it all is. And, and now it feels like this great settling of the snow globe where we all are just stuck with ourselves <laughs> and <laughs> our vulnerability and our people. We're stuck with our people, right? <laughs> So all the little, you know, all the little cracks, all the little truths about ourselves and our relationships that we can kind of ignore with our busyness are just sitting there with us on the couch now, you know, Um, which is so hard. And also as, you know, everything beautiful in my life has come from sobriety, has come from letting the snow settle. So I know that there can be great transformation during this time. For sure, but it doesn't make it any less painful. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, right? When I'm hearing you speak, and, and you're so right that when you're stuck or when you're sitting and you're just observing and you're finally able to hear mm-hmm. and listen and be present with everything that, like you said, you've either ignored, been distracted from, been too busy for, but it's still uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable, right? Like even though we know or you've done it before, and that's what I found interesting in what you just said, you know from your experience that moments like this can be transformative and healing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't make it any more comfortable to go through. Never. And so how do you deal with that? How do you personally, and we were just speaking about it just a few seconds before, how are you personally dealing with that when you're like, oh, this seems familiar. I've, I've kind of, you know, I've kind of felt this before. I know what this feels like to sit with all my, you know, stuff. But at the same time, it's not like it's become easier, like, because I've done it before. So, so how do you process that mentally and spiritually for yourself? Well, you said process. That's what it is. It's like, it's not the way that I experience pain and the waiting that comes after it and then the rising that eventually comes Um, is always the same. Like no matter how many times I can remind myself, oh, this is this part. This is where everything sucks and I hate it and I feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make it 
I can know that it's an important part of the process, but it doesn't change the experience of it at all. Okay, so it doesn't make it hurt any less. I just try to remember what I know from the process and all of that for me comes from sobriety. I mean, the first time I ever, I got, I became bulimic when I was 10 years old. Okay, so I was just a super sensitive kid and I didn't have, I didn't have whatever skills or tools that I needed to, to kind of manage that sensitivity. So I just started numbing it right away. And I think one of those reasons, Jay, is as you know, and speak about all the time is that we just don't learn, you know, in our culture, in this culture, we learn that we're supposed to be happy, right? That happiness is the goal, that, that we're supposed to be happy all the time and we worship happiness. And so when, when the normal feelings come that we all have of fear and doubt and jealousy and pain and anger, well, when I started feeling those things, I just thought something was wrong with me. Because mm. nobody was talking about that, right? I was supposed to be happy, and especially as a girl. Like, I was supposed to be smiling and me, me. Um, so that's why I started numbing so early. And um, that turned into alcoholism and all the things. And then I got sober when I was 25. And I went to my first AA meeting, and it was completely freaking amazing. I just remember thinking, oh, here's where the honest people are. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then I kept going, and then on my, on what they don't tell you about sobriety is everybody wants you to get sober when you're a drunk because you've ruined everyone's lives, okay? <laughs> so, so everyone's desperate for you to get sober, um, as were all the people in my life. But, and so people talk about sobriety like it's so great, and then we get sober, and it's terrible, okay? It's the worst. It's why we started drinking in the first place, right? It's like... <laughs> It's like, oh my God, like I forgot how much it all hurts, you know? Mm. And so I was in that stage, you know, it feels like defrosting, like your mm. painful process of getting feeling back, you know? And I went to my, that meeting and I finally stood up and spoke and I said something like, I'm Glennon, I've been sober for six days and I feel awful and everything hurts and I just... I'm afraid that there's some kind of secret to life that everyone else has that I don't have and I've never had it. And I just feel like it's because I don't have that secret, it's just harder for me to be human than it is for everyone else. And that's all. And I sat down <laughs> and this woman came and sat down next to me afterwards. And she said, I just want to tell you something that someone told me in early sobriety. And that is this, the secret is that feeling all of your feelings is just really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's not hard right now. Life is not hard right now because you're doing it wrong. Life is hard right now because you're finally doing it right. <laughs> right? Because you're feeling all of your feelings. And the thing is that all feelings are for feeling. Okay, Nanja, I understand especially to you that much, that must sound very simple, <laughs> but it was mind blowing to me. Like, no, it's huge. It, it's even now I have to remind, I, I don't think you ever, I mean, are you, you may, but I know that I don't think you ever get to a point where something that that simple is not profound every time you feel it. Because we still have this default mode approach to feeling our feelings. We still go, I don't want to feel that. 
Mm-hmm. Right. If you've got to have a, I, I find the time when you feel it the most is if you've got to have a tough conversation with someone, you can't avoid it. Right. If you really want to say something to someone and you've been feeling it for a long time, but you're not allowing yourself to feel it fully. I, I think we do it. We get lost in that cycle again and again and again. And I feel that you just feel it for less time. But if, hearing you say that right now, despite its simplicity, it's still as profound every time because I think we're just wired to constantly avoid any sort of negative feelings. Like, like you said, you, you mentioned jealousy there. If you feel jealousy, you just go, well, I can't be jealous. That, that can't be a good thing. I'm, I'm a terrible person. Now I'm a terrible friend because I'm jealous of my friend's life or whatever it is. Whereas if you just go, okay, wait, why am I jealous? Let me feel that jealousy out. Like, why is it? Where is it coming from? What is this jealousy? Like all those questions, which I'd love to process with you as well to understand some of the stages of that process. But I'm with you. Sorry, carry on. I'm with you. I'm with no, you. no, that's exactly it. I mean, I just remember thinking, all feelings are for feeling? Like, I didn't <laughs> know that. Like, I thought that happiness was for feeling and that mm. envy and fear and anger and all those things were for avoiding and numbing and denying and deflecting, right? Um, and so I just remember thinking, okay, I guess I'm going to try this. I guess I'll try feeling all my feelings. <laughs> um, and, and Jay, I couldn't, I, I remember I used to, I decided I could not, the one day at a time thing drove me crazy because days are very long. <laughs> okay? like, a day is too long for me. Okay. <laughs> so I started practicing feeling all my feelings within a song. I would lay on my bed and play one song and I would say, okay, I'm going to let because music was too feely for me. Mm. I couldn't let my, I would turn the music off. Right? It was too, it would make me achy. And so I'm practice feeling just three minutes at a time, one song at a time. And then that turned into full days. And what I do know about pain is that it's like, you know, when they talk about emotion, like emotion, it's energy in motion, it's energy in motion in your body. And when we let it flow, it does something, right? It changes us. It changes, like, we ha- the only reason that we're here has to be to become. Like, we just, we're here to keep becoming truer and more beautiful versions of ourselves. And that energy of emotion is one of the things that allows us to become, right? So when we avoid it or we, we easy button our way out of it with all the things we use, it's like, it's like we're jumping out of a cocoon right before we would have become a butterfly, right? Mm, yes. Just like we, we, we can transport ourselves out of the pain, but then we miss all the transformation. And all of them are so specific, like envy. You just mentioned envy. Um, that's a big one for me because I am just, listen, I'm just envious, okay? I, I am. I always have been. It's just what, it's one of those things that is one of the least, my least favorite things about myself, right? Yeah. Um, like I actually used to say, Jay, I just don't get jealous. I'm not an envious person. <laughs> like who? Only envious people would say some stupid. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's always the, the thing that we in in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a book that I love and, and studied very deeply in my time as a monk. It uh, it says that attachment and aversion are two sides of the same coin. Oh, of course. <laughs> so so any, anytime you hear someone deny something or someone obsessed with something that, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. So yeah, no, absolutely. But thank you for being so open and sharing that because I think, again, it's, it's easy to be like, oh, I feel jealous feelings, but to really come out and say, 
hey, this is something I, I really want to, don't like about myself. You know, that requires a lot of courage and that requires a lot of, uh, it requires a lot of, yeah, courage being the right word. It requires bravery to be able to say that. Thank you. I think it just also requires the knowledge that we're just all human and that's okay. Mm. It, it just starts to sound funny when people deny basic things about being human because to me, it doesn't reveal maturity. It reveals a lack of awareness of what a human being is. Mm. <laughs> right? like, yes. So, so um, and, and we can work with all of these things. Like if we have envy, which I got to believe everyone has on some level. 100%. Right? Um, if, if, we can, if we can actually believe that all feelings are for feeling and that they're instructive in some way. I mean, okay, I'll tell you this. When people, when I was drinking all the time, <clears throat> someone handed me a book that was written by a woman and said, this is a beautiful book. You should read it. I would not read it. Jay, I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to see it. I didn't, I, I didn't, I would find a million reasons that I didn't like that author and I didn't like any, like something about looking at words that a woman had written. It felt like looking straight at the sun. It just hurt so much. Okay. And I think I know that that is because nothing burns quite like seeing someone else do the thing that you know in your heart you a, a braver healthier version of yourself was born to do mm, yeah absolutely and 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 that's partly why i think sometimes at least i've noticed in myself and and this is kind of how i spot envy and jealousy in myself because sometimes i think you become oblivious to it because i sometimes disguise it in criticism or justification of why that person has that thing Yes. So, so I disguise my, my jealousy or envy by going, oh yeah, but you know, they had like rich parents or, or, you know, but like they just got really lucky or, you know, yeah, but their work's not really, you know, whatever it is. And, and you kind of disguise it. And so it kind of hides there and then you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not jealous. I just have good observational skills. Uh, and, and, and you know what I mean? I know way too well what you mean and it makes me feel so good that that you have some of that experience too definitely it's mine it's like it's like it's like admiration that's like holding its breath oh, <laughs> you know wow. it's like it could be a positive thing if we embraced it fully but for me it's like my body becomes this machine where it's like admiration goes in and then <laughs> and like snark comes out like, oh, I never liked her anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. But really what I learned was that if I could not do that, if I could not, you know, hot, but hot potato my envy away, that it's really pointing me towards something that I was meant to do. Mm. It's actually really help, uncomfortable, but helpful emotion. It's mm -hmm. often can guide us towards our purpose, guide us to who we admire, you know, like the most freeing thing for me is when I see something that someone has done and I love it and I think it's awesome. For me, it's always something that someone's written or something. <laughs> in my first experience is I think, I wish I would have written that. I wish I could. <laughs> and then I just, that's my knee jerk reaction. But if I can somehow either reach out to that person and tell them how much I loved it 
Or if I can't reach out to that person because I don't know that person, if I share it with other people, the whole clenchiness goes away. It's like back to abundance, back to abundance. And it just feels. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so beautiful. And, and, And you're so right. And those are all steps of the process. Like, I don't think you ever get to a point where you don't feel that initial reaction. I, I, I don't believe that. This is my belief. I'd love to hear yours. I don't believe that you ever get to a point where you don't have a envious, negative, ego-driven thought. What I believe is that you entertain it for less time. Yes. And so now, it, before, previously, you would obsess over that for seven days. Mm-hmm. And you would complain and you would criticize and you would compare and you talk about it with everyone negatively and you'd gossip. Whereas now, as you work on it, as you work on the process, don't get obsessed, or at least my thoughts are, don't get obsessed on trying to remove that thought for all time. That's just not realistic. But you will find yourself, oh, I only felt like that for seven minutes, and now I shared it, and now I feel positive about it again, you know? And so I just try not to, I try not to make anything eternally present or eternally absent. Oh, I love that. I just, you've made me, I've never said that before. I just thought of that right now talking to you. Like I try not to make anything eternally present or eternally absent because nothing can be that. Like, I think we always go like, I never want to have this thought again. Or I always want to feel this way, right? We say both of those things. I always want to feel this way or I never want to have this thought again. The truth is neither of them are actually possible. Yeah, that's right. But what you can do, what I've learned, I guess that's what awareness is, right? It's like, oh, here's that thing happening again. And I actually think of myself, I'm like, oh, look at you. You're such a sweet little idiot. Here you are again. (laughs) You know, like, look at you. Look at you again. Here's that part where, right? That's what I think of. Here's that part where you feel like there's not enough and you miss the boat and no one likes you. And here's that sweet, go ahead for a minute. And then we're going to move on to the next part. Mm. (laughs) what what do you think it is about our childhoods i've become really fascinated in the past i don't have children you have children so you know you're able to observe them and your life and parenting and that whole dynamic which i think is i i uh, observe at the moment at least is such a beautiful learning curve or a painful learning curve but a learning curve nevertheless what are your thoughts on how your childhood and, and not just yours, but everyone's frames so many of those beliefs and values. And how do you think your childhood specifically, what was it that led you to kind of creating that snow globe kind of feeling? Mm. Because, because I've just got fascinated by how I feel like all of me and my wife talk about it all the time, like how I think all of our values in relationships, in marriage are all framed from what we either saw or didn't see in our parents. Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by hearing that from different people. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, being a parent yourself. Yeah, and it feels like such an, a trap sometimes because it's like, <clears throat> if sometimes it feel, when I look at people, I think, and myself, I think, okay, people do one of two things, right? They, they look at, they experience their childhood and then they are obedient to it, mm-hmm. right? They are, they take the values that they learned and they try to, whatever was a good girl or a good boy, like they try to obey their whole lives. Mm. Right? And that looks different in adulthood, but they, they agree, right? They, yeah. they carry it with them forever. And then there's the other side and that's kind of a cage, right? To just stay in the little, the kind of construct that you were. Okay. 
it's not creative, in other words, it's repetitive. Um, but then there's the other side of people who just rebel against it, right? Who, who, who look at what was taught to them or the way they were raised and then they rail against it their whole lives, right? The, this is just a rebellion, which I have figured out because I've looked at my wife who did some of that and we figured this out together, that that's just as much of a cage. That's yeah. equally uncreative, yeah. right? Because if you're living your life, if you're creating your existence in um, resistance to the man, then you're still fully controlled by the man. Yeah. Whether you're obeying or rebelling, right? Yes. yes. So the idea of how you look at what you, you, you are, you become aware of, of, of what you learned when you were a kid, and then you sort of take what you want and you create your own thing that is neither a rebellion nor an obedience is just... I mean, for me... That's powerful. Right? It's like, that's I don't have really, to do it, that's though. That's really powerful. It's the same way how the opposite of, like, fanatical religion versus atheism, fanatical atheism. It's like that. Same thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, no, that's such a great, great point. Rebellion and obedience. I love that. Sorry, carry on. I'm just like... I mean, you think of it. Adam and I talk about it a lot in terms of faith, too, because she was raised Catholic, and in a, in a, she was a gay kid in, in Catholicism, and so she equated the church with God. So when she rejected church, she, in her little childhood heart, felt like, well, now this is when I say goodbye to God. God doesn't love me. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, God and I are not friends. <laughs> okay. Ooh, yeah. And talk about something hard to get over your whole life, right? 100%, yeah. So, so we laugh about it that, that Abby has spent her life furious at a God she doesn't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> so like, even that kind of rebellion is like you're still controlled by it, though. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I guess my story about childhood is I just I got so sick so early, you know, at ten, that I spent most of my life. I mean, until I, I didn't get sober till I was twenty six. So I spent most of my formative years just in like doctor's office after doctor's office and just, you know, diagnosis after diagnosis. I was hospitalized in a, what was a mental hospital my senior year in high school. And so my, um, whether it was from my family or, or my culture, I don't know, wherever it came from, um, my narrative was, you're crazy. Mm. I believed that. Mm. Like I could do all the things, I could act a certain way to be see that but at my root shame belief about myself was you're crazy right that's and that's a tough belief to hold well it becomes impossible to trust yourself right because how can a crazy person be trusted not to sabotage all of it yeah so when you talk about raising kids and how that has so i have a little one my middle child who is i have to believe a lot like i was as a kid she's just very, very sensitive. She has big freaking feelings all day, all the days, Jay. All the days. And um, and so it's like parenting is interesting, first of all, because it's one thing that can require you to live an examined life, right? Because there's many things that that can that can be the catalyst of this, but parenting is one because you want to teach your kids how to live a good life. 
So for some of us, it's the first time we have to figure out, okay, what the hell do I think is going <laughs> right? Yes. right? A bunch of kids saying, so what do I do? How do I act? What does brave mean? What is love? And you're like, okay, hold on. <laughs> what is love? Okay, so, um, so there's that. It's a beautiful re-examining of everything and figuring out what you really love and what you really believe in and what you really want for people. Um, but also it's a way to heal your ideas about yourself. Mm. So, so Tish, this little one, I'll just tell you a quick story about her. Okay. So this is just to get to our point, but yeah, yeah, yeah. a few years ago, she, um, her teacher called me from school and she said, Glennon, we have a situation. And I said, I'm sure we do. Because <laughs> that call before. And she said, well, I was talking to the kids and I, I may have accidentally mentioned that the polar bears were losing their homes because the ice caps were melting. Uh-huh. She said, Glennon, the other kids thought this was sad, but not too sad to like soldier onto recess, but Tish is still sitting on the floor uh-huh. asking question after where, wh- who, where's the polar bear's mom? Like where are the polar bears gonna live now? Where, what are the grownups doing about that? This, that question kills me. Um, and Jay, she came home, and I'm telling you that our family's life revolved around polar bears for three freaking months. Like, mm-hmm. I had to put posters on the wall of polar bears. I had to sponsor four polar bears online. Um, we had to talk about polar bears at dinner and at carpool and at parties so incessantly that I just began to hate polar bears. <laughs> it just rude the day that polar bears were ever born. So um, one day... I was putting her to bed and she said, mom, and I said, what, honey? She said, it's the polar bears. And I was like, oh, hell no, right? And she said, mommy, it's just, it's just that it's the polar bears now, but nobody cares. So soon it'll be us. Oh, wow. And Jay, she fell asleep and I was like, oh my God. Wow, yeah, that's it, wow. So I just remember that night thinking, oh, I get it. She's not crazy to be heartbroken about the polar bears. The rest of us are crazy not to be heartbroken about the polar bears, right? And I started thinking about this little sensitive kid. You know, in most cultures, Jay, like as you know, in most cultures, deeply feeling people are identified early. They are, you know, seem to be a little eccentric, but also crucial to the tribe's survival, right? These are the shaman and women and the medicine men and women and the monks and the clergy and the poets and the artists. But it's just, and the, and the reason they're critical is because they can see things that other people can't see. And they, they are willing to feel things that other people are not willing to feel. Mm-hmm. But I think in our culture, we are so hell-bent on speed and productivity that we just, it's easier just to dismiss people like that and call them broken. Yeah, and damaged. Right? Rather than thinking, oh, they're actually responding appropriate to a broken world. Mm. Like, they're the canaries in the coal mine. They're the ones standing on the bow of the Titanic going, iceberg, iceberg. (laughs) Right? While everyone else is like, we just want to keep dancing. So, um, So anyway, what I figured out is watching Tish is not in a million years would I ever call this child broken. Mm-hmm. I would never call her crazy, mm-hmm. right? Which made me rethink 
everything I've ever believed about myself, right? I wasn't crazy. I wasn't broken. I was just a highly sensitive person without the skills that I needed and tools that I needed to kind of manage that sensitivity, right? So, yeah. so for me, and, and I'm still exactly the same. Like I'm still, you know, the, the sensitivity that, it, you know, I'm, I have deal with depression and anxiety. It's all tied together. Mm-hmm. And the parts of my life that, that um, the sensitivity that makes life hard, it's also the sensitivity that makes me a really good artist. Yes, yes. It's all same, same. <laughs> That's what parenthood has done for me. It's, it's helped yeah. me, besides, it's just incredibly difficult sometimes. <laughs> I'll say that. But it's also helped me revise my old stories about myself. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I mean, thank you for sharing that story too of Tish because I, I think that, that will resonate with, and you know that already, but it will resonate with so many people listening and watching right now because I think people judge themselves for being sensitive souls. People judge themselves for being empaths or people judge other people who are that way. Like, oh yeah, she cries about everything or, you know, he's always gonna... And, and the truth is you're so right that actually that person's just more in touch with their true selves and they're allowing themselves to feel they just don't have the tools to do that in a effective way, whatever effective means for them. And, and what, I, what I find so interesting about what you're sharing and, and intriguing for me is I feel like the, the words that are used from, from the wisdom books that I love and the way it's portrayed, it's all about purifying and engaging the parts of ourselves that we don't love or don't like because then you can transform them into love. Mm. It's not about negating or deflecting or, you know, putting under the carpet or, you know, under the rug or whatever it may be. Like it's not hiding it. And the words purifying and engaging, like when you can, what you've just done is talk about how you can engage it into art, right? Engaging that same. And you talk a lot about rewriting your story from anxiety to fire. (laughs) and I love that like I think that that is such a powerful I'd love for you to tell us about how that came about and how you were able to actually rewire your approach because I think that's where so many people are struck we keep going I'm an anxious person I'm I'm a I'm a sensitive person I'm and and it's all negative and it's it doesn't it's not being engaged it's not being purified how were you able to rewrite that story into fire well, I mean, some of it's just defining words right for me. I mean, mm. I'm a words person. And so the word sensitive, for me, I mean, I, I actually have zero negative connotation to the word sensitive. I mean, to me, the opposite of sensitive is not brave. It's insensitive. <laughs> so, like, that's not a badge of honor. Like, yeah. you're so sensitive. Thank you. I am able to sense. Right? <laughs> and I'm willing to sense. And, and, and so much good comes of it, right? Yeah. And the anxiety thing, Jay, that's, an, I don't know. I, I can explain to you what it feels like for me, which yeah. is that I do tend to worry a lot. I sometimes tend to fall into the lie that everyone's success and health is completely dependent on my commitment to worrying about them. Right? <laughs> that I am actually worrying all of us into peace, which is, complete crap okay um the way it manifests in me is um it's it's, i i find it being depressed and anxious at the same time it's like 
being Eeyore and Tigger, like all at the same time. (laughs) Very tricky existence. It's like always being a little bit too low or too high, but really being able to be landed where life is, right? Mm. Which is like right here, right now. That's the challenge for me. It's like, okay, not too low, not too high. We're just going to stay right here in the moment, right? That's the trick. Um, I mean, it, it, it manifests in funny ways for me, Jay. I am the sweatiest person who has ever sweated. Like I decided, <laughs> it's, look at me. This is, I can't wear, I can't wear sleeves. <laughs> I literally cannot wear sleeves. I have 30 black tank tops and 30 white tank tops. And that's all I can wear because I have decided that I care the most amount and that my care about everything is shown in sweat. Um, So, but what I will say is that just like the sensitivity that, that can lead me towards depression makes me a good artist, that fire Mm. is what makes me a relentless activist. I'm really good. I'm really good at caring the most amount, telling stories in a way that make other people care the most amount, getting people to trust me so that they will share resources with me that I can then give to people who are doing an amazing work in the world. And so, you know, that fire that leads me to be fearful and sweaty is also the exact same fire that leads me to world healing work. And I, I really think, I don't know what you would say about this, but cause I know this is kind of a story, but I feel like it's true, which is that, you know, most of my, I'm an artist and an activist. So most of my friends are artists and activists. So most of my friends have depression. Mm -hmm. It feels like a lot of people who have deep creativity or deep fire um, tend towards some mental differences, tend towards huge world healing work. Mm. So it's one of those, like you take the, I'll take all of it. Mm. I don't want to like not have any of it because for me, you know, it's like when I decided to get sober and I remember looking at the, I, I, I decided to get sober the moment that I found out I was pregnant. Wow. And Chase, who's now 18. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think he's 17. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's there's waiting to be. There's somewhere between like, they're walking, but not in college. Okay, they're somewhere <laughs> in that. <laughs> Um, and I had this knowing of like, oh, I see if, if I want something as beautiful as motherhood, then I'm going to have to have all the brutal of being human, Mm. both all the time, Mm. all or nothing. Absolutely. No, you're spot on. I think, and I agree with you because I find like, there's two, there's two kind of like roots to purpose or, or, or paths to purpose. And one of them is passion and the other one's pain. Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes it's like you're following your passion and what you're excited about. So some artists are doing that. But for a lot of artists, it's like, I want to heal this pain in the world and I want to heal this pain in myself. Mm-hmm. And so then that's my path towards purpose. And, and I think you're right that I think so many people, especially art and writers and singers and musicians and poets, especially that kind of artistry, it's, it's because of healing a pain in their life or in someone else's that they experience that guides them that way. I just, you reminded me of a movie that I just saw that I keep going on about. I don't know if you've seen Saving Mr. Banks. No, but I will tonight. 
it's so it's the story of so it's Tom Hanks isn't it? It's in the Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks. It's it's a you know incredible cast, but it's a story of how Walt Disney acquires the rights for Mary Poppins. Mm. And it's and I don't know if you're a fan of Mary Poppins or yes, if you I love Mary yeah. Poppins. Yes. So then you will love this movie because you get to understand the backstory of Mary Poppins and what it was inspired by. Okay. But anyway, I'm not going to give away any more. But from what we're talking about, what you're saying is so. When you watch that movie, you'll be like, "This is exactly what I'm talking about." That you start seeing the parallels of someone's art being a representation of of their own experience of something, right? And so. I, I, I'm with you on that. And I, I definitely see that. I, I guess the point then is, does someone become boring or uncreative if they heal that anxiety? <laughs> that's, like, you know, like, that's, that's kind of like my question. Because I go, does that mean that someone forever? It's, it's kind of like saying how people wrote better love songs before they were in relationships. It's totally. That, right? it's, totally. like, it's like before you're on the path to finding whatever it is, you're more interesting than when you found it. And, yeah. and it's almost like, so, so does, what is your take on that with artists and your own, your own transformation, your own healing, your own journey? How do you, like, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you process There's this? so many different ways of thinking about this. I mean, first of all, one of my, I'm, I'm hearing my friend Liz in my head right now because Liz Gilbert is one of my best friends. And she yes. would say that all of this is just horse crap, that all of this suffering, you have to be suffering to be an artist, like yeah. that is all... That, that is just an old story and not true. So, and I, I trust Liz. Okay. She's yeah, so there's that side too. Um, I don't know. I can tell you this, that I have never felt freer in my life. I will always deal with mental differences. I will always, um, I just kind of like feel like I'm, wa- I'm always walking around the edge of the black hole. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, I'm just, oh, Edge, and that's okay. Like I, yeah. I'm good on the edge, right? It's, I, I have accepted it. Okay, I believe that I will stay. I will not jump. I will stay on the edge forever, and it's okay with me that the whole ground is not solid for me. Okay, mm. there's beauty on the edge for sure, but I don't worship suffering anymore. Yeah. Right? When I what do you mean by that? Tell us what that means because I think I, that's such a powerful statement, and there's so much locked in that. Like, what does it mean to worship suffering? Because I think we're not aware of that. And sorry, I just want to amplify yeah. that because I think it's such a powerful statement. Well, I mean, as someone who grew up in a Christian tradition, mm-hmm. as someone who grew up as a woman, that's a double whammy of you earn your worthiness through suffering, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Um, I remember when I was deciding whether or not to stay in a broken marriage or to follow this unbelievable, expansive, wide love that I had found with Abby, I decided that I was going to stay in my marriage because I was too afraid of hurting everybody. And I was having a conversation with a friend and I said, you know what? It's fine. I'm just going to shut this part of myself down. I'm just going to stay. I'm, it, it's going to be hard, but I've always been able to learn from pain. And she said, do you might also be able to learn from joy? <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. I decided at that point at 42 years old that I was going to experiment with that, that I was going to try to see if, if it's possible that we live in this beautiful universe that would, yes, allow us to learn from pain, but might even prefer 
if when we could, we would choose joy to learn from instead. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And it's kind of like that. Like what you just said makes so much sense. Like the, the reason we have to suffer in pain is because we don't learn in joy, right? Like that's, that's exactly it because I, I, I always feel like, I always feel like pain makes us pay attention. Yes. It's, and and I, I've seen this in, in just being around children at least. It's like your child just has to shout louder if you don't give your presence and attention earlier. Mm-hmm. And our bodies do that. Our minds do that. It's almost like what, what you were saying right at the beginning with the snow globe. It's like because we're shaking the snow globe, we're so distracted. It's like only when you're still can you actually hear what your body's trying to tell you. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got this ache in my back. <laughs> right? It's like, what? like, I didn't realize that. I've been on like seven flights this month and, you know, I was running around and I was doing this and I was carrying people, whatever. And I didn't notice it. But now that I've just stopped for a second and I feel like pain is just the signal, right? It's just a signal to be like your alarm gets louder when you don't go and turn it off. It's, it's that. And, and I feel for so many of us, you're so right. And it comes from not learning in joy, not being complacent in joy. But sometimes I feel that puts such a pressure for people because people go, oh my God, now I have to learn in joy. Like, like it's yeah. like, can I not just enjoy it and experience it? Yeah, I get that too. I mean, first of all, if you can just be in joy and experience it, you should. I, I have to also learn from it because I'm a freaking writer. Okay? <laughs> I'm jealous of all the people who just get to be in the joy. But um, what I would say is that I am still myself mm-hmm. with all my weirdness and things, issues, but I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm freer than I've ever been. And I've never been a better writer than I am now. Mm-hmm. I've never been clearer. I've never been more confident in my writing. I've never been uh, more effective in activism. So I think that some of that I must suffer to create is probably not true. Mm. And, um, and I just, I, I think that there's necessary pain. And, and, and it's like, I've just categorized it for myself. Like, there's just pain that you just, you know, losing people or losing dreams or, you know, losing, losing. These are the things that are just, they're just the price you pay for being an open-hearted human being, right? Yeah. You're taking yeah. risk. Like that kind of loss is just the price of love, right? And that is, I'm willing, forever I'm willing to have that pain. Mm. Right? But there's this other pain that is optional. And it's mm-hmm. like the pain that comes from not even trying for those things, right? It's like... Yes. I see it in people. It's like yes. the pain in someone's eyes who's, who knows that she could do something that she's not doing or the pain in someone's eyes who's not bringing her full self to her relationship so she's slowly dying because she's not telling the truth. Like that kind of pain that comes from abandoning yourself is what I'm not going to do anymore and worship that. Does yeah. that That makes so much sense. Yeah. I'll take the first kind, right? Yeah, no, that's... My life. So well said, so well said. You're, you're literally, I, I have to stop and just take a moment. Anyone who's listening or watching right now, I, I hope you're feeling the energy that I'm feeling and I don't know if Glennon's feeling it, but I'm feeling it. I'm going to say I am in love with this conversation right now because you're inspiring so much thought through everything you share. Like I am deeply reflecting on everything you're saying and it is giving me so many revelations right now. And I mean that in the most 
honest and genuine way. So when I'm hearing you say that, what I'm hearing about it from a giving point of view and, and what you just said about you, you feel like you're the best writer, your best ability to give right now. And you're saying, what I find is that we express well in, in three areas that are coming to my mind right now as well. One is the suffering. Like, so what you said before, like when you went through the suffering and you were able to tell that story, that was helpful and that was powerful. The musicians we spoke about. The second is the survivor. It's like when you survive something, you tell that survival story. You're like, okay, now I got through it. I'm going to help people. And then I kind of feel like you're at that level in the way that I see you helping people in the world is that you're a server, mm. right? Because of your, your big heart and your sensitive soul that's just trying to serve and give and expand yourself in abundance to serve as many people as possible. And you're serving millions of people across the world. I feel like that's when you, well, I, I would love to check this with Elizabeth Gilbert too, but I guess that's what's giving you the highest sense of expression and creativity mm. is being of service, mm. right? And it's like, it's like, those are all the levels. Like we start as sufferers, then we become survivors when we survive our suffering, but then eventually we rise to being servers in society. Mm-hmm. And, and then you see the real joy. And I think that's what at least I know the traditions I studied would suggest that those who are living in service, having been through that would, would find the ultimate expression and creativity because uh, they'd be doing it for more than themselves. So I don't know what you think about that. I'm just, it's coming to my mind. So I'm sharing it. I, it's blowing my mind a little bit because um, yes, that is correct. But even specifically um, when you said serving, serving, when, when, you know, several weeks ago, or I don't even know, Jay, maybe it was two years ago, whenever the quarantine started. <laughs> so you're so <laughs> right. I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> we were, I was so focused on the book, Jay. I thought it was the most important thing in the world. Mm. And, you know, this is like the story that is in my heart since I was 10 years old. I was like, my whole team had been working on it for so long. It was so important, so important. And then I started the tour and two days into the tour, the Corona happened, all the things. We canceled the tour early. And I remember coming home and the whole team just, you know, all these people have been working so hard on this. And they said, what are we going to do? And I said, the only thing I can think to do is that the world's about to be in a lot of pain and we're just going to switch to service, Mm. switch to service. We are out of promotion mode. We are switched to service. We're just going to show up. And the great thing about this, Jay, is I think that that when I came to life was then. Like, you know, we go through creative cycles, right? And the, the, pre, pre, the, the guy leading up to promoting something is so like, it's confusing, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. like, it's like you become an artist, so you make the thing. And then you've made the thing. Yeah. <laughs> But then you have to go be a commercial about the thing that you made. But I already made the thing. <laughs> I remember saying to my editor, like, do, pa- do painters have to go out and paint about their paintings? Because <laughs> I don't understand why I have to say words about the words that yeah. I wrote, you know? Yeah. So it's just a little confusing. And then the switch to service mode. And we meant a lot of things by that. Like, I meant just freaking focus on Together Rising. Just yeah. The, the, the stories every, everyone's going to need, everyone's going to need, and we need to have all hands on deck there. But I also meant, like, I'm just going to start showing up every day without any um, need for perfection or shininess or, like, just 
hi, here I am, here we are. <laughs> Let's hold space for each other. Yeah. And, and all of that worry has gone away and it's kind of, it's felt purer. Mm. So that, it must be what you're talking about. I love that. No, that's, that's amazing. And, 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 I, and so I'm going to do it for you. So anyone who's listening or watching right now, I want you to go and get the book. We're not finished yet, <laughs> but I'm taking a quick commercial break <laughs> to promote because I cannot tell you, I mean, I've loved all your books, but this one's super special because, and, and I'm about to ask a question about it, but I, I just can't tell you enough right now how I also think that this book is of service in the sense that this book, even though you didn't write it for this right now, mm-hmm. it is so useful right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think anyone and everyone who picks it up, because, because half of the things we're all dealing with right now, like you said, you wrote it for, you know, the 10 year old, you know, the, the story since you were 10 and it's like, but, but Hey, that's the part of us that's struggling right now. Mm-hmm. It's the part of us at 10 that was never trained to deal with anxiety. It was the part of us at 10 that was always fearful. It was the part of us at 10 that doesn't know how to deal with transition and change, right? It is that same child inside of us that is feeling the most affected right now. Wow. And, and I feel like that's the child you're talking to. Like that's the person you're talking to. And so I, I'm, I'm doing it for you. I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah, everyone, we're going to put the link afterwards everywhere. So make sure you go and grab a copy of this book and, and order it because it is going to be a beautiful companion and guide right now. And this is, this is something I really want to talk to you about. And I, I love the title, but I wanted to talk to you about the difference between tamed and untamed language. Mm. And, and what are some of those questions that are helpful in the process of being untamed? Because I think, I think the biggest challenge, and, and you know this and you talk about this, we don't even know that we're tamed. Like we don't even know that we're in a prison. We don't even know that we're caged. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about that language that helps us understand the difference between tamed and untamed language. Okay. Well, um, so tamed language would be like when a, when a woman says to me, I am dying in my marriage, but I can't leave because, you know, good mothers don't break their children's hearts because I can't, because, you know, women should be grateful. Like, so words like can't, should, um, good and bad, right and wrong. Like these are all, I remember figuring this out when I was trying to decide what to do in my marriage, my first marriage. Mm -hmm. I was married to a good, good man who's one of my best friends and we are all co-parenting together, but we were struggling, man. Like we were just, I was in a broken marriage to a good man. And that is a difficult place to be for because you're supposed to be grateful and it's all supposed to be good enough. Right. Um, And then we went through some infidelity things and afterwards, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember um, going to the internet for advice about what to do with my one wild and precious life, as a guru does, right? Yes. We check with the trolls and the bots to get <laughs> um, And I, I remember reading all these articles. I've always been in this interesting Venn diagram, which is like in the, in the religious world, right? And, and also squarely in the feminist world. This is a strange Venn diagram to be in. Yes, very much so. And I remember like reading all of these articles, right, from 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 feminist thought thought leaders and Christian thought leaders. Each of them had exact opposite ideas about what the good thing to do, what the right thing to do, what a woman should do. And this is when I realized, oh, those words are not pure. These are 
you know, good, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what, what you should do, supposed to do. Those are all like, um, they're like the sheepdogs that keep the herd in, in order, right? They are not pure in any way. They're culturally constructed ideas, right? So, so one thing I love to do with people when they tell me all the things they can't do or should do, like going back to the marriage, um, the marriage example. So I might say to her, okay, forget all the can't and should right now. Can you tell me a story about the truest, most beautiful marriage you can imagine? <laughs> Okay. Jay, there is something about, it's like when you ask what you should do or you, or you're supposed to do or what the good or the right thing is, it's like the mind activates, right? All of our cultural, all of our fear, all of our excuses, all of our whatever. And there's something about what's the truest, most beautiful story where, where it bypasses all of that. And it's like the heart opens and, and it's just like a story comes out. You know, it's like, it's like everybody's born, there's a purity to it. It's like, um, it's like everybody has a blueprint inside of them for what they were meant. Because I don't believe that there's one way to have a family or one way to have a love or one way to have a marriage or one way to be a parent. I think that the norms are, <clears throat> are made by somebody and we can all make our own. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Right? Yeah, massively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's something about what is the truest, most beautiful life? What is the truest, most beautiful marriage? What is the truest, most beautiful job you can imagine? What is the, you know, that kind of just quiets all the can'ts and is less scary. Um, And you start to realize, you know, I almost didn't follow the love of my life. Like I, I get sweaty just thinking about it, but I almost abandoned myself again. Because, Jay, I was tamed to believe that a good mother does not hurt her children, Mm. right? And one day I was braiding my little girl's hair, and I remember looking at her and thinking, oh, I am staying in this marriage for her. Mm. But would I want this marriage for her? And if I wouldn't want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering yeah wow right which which is is was one of the first experiences in realizing how tamed i was because i know why i was doing that because i was tamed which just means socially conditioned okay it just means socially programmed obviously but to believe that a good mother is a martyr Mm. that that good mothering jay Mm. It's about just slowly dying and burying your dream and your ambition and your, your um, emotions, just burying yourself and calling that love. Mm. This is why, and what a burden for all What a burden. What a legacy to pass down to our kids, to, to teach them that love means to slowly disappear, mm. right? Instead of, of course, of course, love requires the beloved and the lover not to disappear, but to emerge fully, yeah. right? It has to be one of the best definitions of that, that which requires us to emerge fully, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I realized, oh, that's my taming. Like, I'm spending my whole life trying to be good, but because I'm defaulting to the cultural definitions of good, I'm passing down terrible legacies to my kids. Yeah. I'm not living 
truly to myself or I'm, I'm, I'm caged and I'm caging my children. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. Because if I teach them that the ultimate love is martyrdom, that is what they will try to be one day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they, they, our children will only live as fully as we give ourselves permission to live. Yeah. So what I have come to believe about motherhood, because I really think untaming is really just, it's just digging up all of those roots that have been planted beneath us and examining them and replanting our own, right? Which is mother, motherhood for me now. It's just, it's, it has nothing to do with martyrdom and everything to do with being a model. Yeah. Right? Not settling for anything that is less true and beautiful than the relationship that I would want for my babies. Mm-hmm. We can say whatever we want, but they will be what we allow ourselves to be. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that, that's, it's like the language is, is a cage, right? We have to ask ourselves, what do we believe is good? And why do we believe that? Who taught us that? And who benefits from us believing that? Yeah, exactly. And, and whether it even sits with us, like, right? like whether it resonates with our heart or whether it connects with us. And you're so right. Like we don't even know where those where that taming comes from half the time or why we live that way. And hearing you say that, I mean, I I love the way you describe it. I I get the part where you're like taming social conditioning, but it's like the way you express it is so, so powerful in in the book and right now, because, because that's, that's the part, right? Like I think everyone with a bit of common sense would say, yeah, actually I, I have a lot of like conditioning from my childhood or conditioning from school or education or society. But, but when you explain it, in a marriage situation, and this is the thing, it's like, is it a job? Is it a marriage? What part of it in our lives are we still living that way? Mm-hmm. Where, it's, where we're seeing life as a sacrifice, as, as for your children or for whatever. It's like, I'll stay in this because it's better for them. And, and like you said, like just not wanting it for them. You know, how could you want it for yourself? Tell, tell me about how tough that is to translate that realization up here and here, actually not up here, up here, down here, because you said it's not a mental block, it's, it's of the heart and emotion. How hard is it to transition that from really feeling that in your heart to then actually having that conversation with your partner, to, to having that actually go through with it? Like, tell us about that, because I think sometimes, and, and both are important, because it's only when it's really strong here can you even let it out. And so for a lot of us, the first step is just, have you really understood it for yourself? Exactly. <laughs> right? That part takes like, in my, that takes about 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that takes a long freaking time to admit to yourself yeah. that you have a longing, that you have a discontent, that you have, because once you admit that like you could imagine more for yourself, mm. then it's scary because you might have to do something about it. And then yeah. something requires all kinds of like making other people uncomfortable. And like you were talking about in the beginning, having hard conversations and, and for God's sake, it's not all about divorcing your husband and marrying a woman, which I highly recommend, but, <laughs> but it's not like, it's, it's also about just saying hard things. Like I have so many friends who, um, you know, don't have the marriage they want right now, but they don't want a marriage with somebody else. They want, they, they just want to have, be able to say the hard thing so that they can create a truer, more beautiful marriage with the same person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but those conversations, they are so hard. I mean, 
the, the, I, when I finally really and truly looked at myself in the mirror and realized this is real, you are in love with Abby. This is the first time you've been in love in your, your life. At that point, it didn't at all feel like a decision about whether or not to be in love with Abby. At that point, it felt so serious that it was like, this is where I decide whether or not I trust myself, whether or not I abandon myself, right? Um, as soon as I could, I talked to Craig about it. So the, the, one of the wild things about Abby and I's story is that we completely dismantled our lives to be with each other before we had ever been alone together. So this was all over the period of many months after we had only spent a couple hours together at, a, at an event, right, in public. Um, we fell in love through letters to each other. Um, so I told Craig first, we had been through so much together with the, we worked so hard to heal, to heal after the infidelity in my marriage. Um, and I thought we were working so hard so that we could be happily ever after together. But I think now in retrospect, we were working so hard that we could part without hating each other. Like mm. we really forgave each other. Mm. Thank God, that's why we're able to co-parent now. Then I had to tell the kids, which was the hardest conversation I've ever had in my life. And was, I just don't even have any like shining wisdom about that. It was totally freaking brutal. I just, but I do remember saying, we have taught you to be true to yourself, even when it's hard and scary, and even when it disappoints other people. And I'm about to do that to you right now. Um, and it was as hard as it always is for kids to go through divorce. They, their, their dad is freaking the, the most loving dad in the world. I mean, so that was hard. But you know what was the hardest one? Oh, and I had to like come, by the way, Jay, I had to come. This, I, I announced to the world that I was getting divorced four weeks before my book about the, the redemption of my marriage came out. <laughs> but I had to because my sobriety is the only thing that matters to me. And so my only rule for myself is that I have to be matching my outsides to my insides. I don't care if I'm doing the right thing. I don't care if I'm screwing up. All I care about is that I'm not living in shame because shame is what takes me out. And if I'm hiding anything, then I know I'm in shame and I can't do that. So I just told all the things. But the <laughs> hardest one was telling my mom. Mm. It's so funny, Jay. I feel like people can be the most badass, untamed people until they got to call their mama. That's so true. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so terrified. And, um, and it's the most important, it was the most important process of my life walking through this with my parents and away from my parents because what happened jay is that my mom was scared to death and she brought me a lot of her fear um my mom's my best friend and i have always trusted that my mom knows what's best for me okay that was one of my taming my taming yes, yes. my job to please my parents and that my parents know what's best for me okay yeah. And so when I told my mom, she was very afraid and she brought a lot of that fear to me and I could hear it in every question, you know, she would, how are the kids, parent, how are the kids friends going to act? How's the world going to treat you? And, and Jay, I felt myself getting so um, defensive and anxious every time we talked, which is when I figured out that it's not 
the cruel criticism of people who hate us that shakes us. It's the loving concern of people who, who love us. Ooh. Right? That so true. So true. Yeah. And so one day we were on the phone and she was just spinning and, and she was just worrying and calling that love, right? And I heard her say, your dad and I are coming to visit. We're going to fly down and visit. And I heard myself say, no, you can't come. I said, mom, you are still afraid. And my kids are not afraid. We taught them that love in any form is to be celebrated and that it is always best just to be yourself and let the world catch up. So they're not carrying the fear you carry. But if you come here and bring it, they will see it in your eyes and they will help you carry it because they love and trust you. So I have to tell you this hard thing, which is that your fear is not our problem. And it's my duty as their mother to make sure it never becomes their problem. So go deal with your problem. And when you are able to come here to, the, to this island of our family with nothing but celebration and respect, we will lower the drawbridge for you, but not one second sooner. And that is the moment I became an adult. <laughs> That's a tough conversation. That's an extremely tough conversation. But it, was, but it was the moment where I realized that we become responsible. It goes back to the beginning of your conversation, your question you asked me, that we become responsible adults when we stop being obedient children. Yeah. Right? When we, when we realize that the best way to honor our parents is to trust fully the, the people they raised. Yeah. And, and to take responsibility for our lives and, and not live them in a repeated pattern of pain. So that why? So that when we're 60, we can say, I would have had a good life, but my mom wouldn't let me. Exactly. That's literally it. That's literally it. That's exactly it. And everyone has their own version of that story. Whether it's your mom or your dad or your school or your teacher or your boss or whoever it is. And an imaginary person you're asking for permission from, right? And the amazing thing is, is when you stop asking for permission and you live your life, people either come around or they stop coming around. Either way, lovely. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a risk worth taking to, to have that conversation and then also hope that you keep the door open enough that there is a chance to mend it. Like there is a chance for that to... Allow that person back into your life. I think that's what we all want. What we all want is just, and, and I think that's the challenge. We all want people to instantly love our decisions. Yeah. The moment we make them. We like, you know, we want like, as soon as I tell this person, and that's why we only tell them about our good decisions or yes. our good decisions. Again, going back to what you said, good and bad, there is none. It's socially constructed. But we go, oh yeah, if I've got to, if, if I'm really proud of one of my decisions, I'm going to tell them. If I'm somewhat ashamed, and first of all, why am I ashamed of this? But it's that shame and guilt that stops us from wanting to say that to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what you said there, I love that question that you asked. That You were like, well, what is the most truest form of marriage? Like, what is the most, you know, that story version, as you were saying, not what's the right marriage or the best marriage, but what is the truest, most, you know, authentic form of marriage or love or relationship? And, and the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question was, I was like, honesty just stood out as like a big thing. And I think, I think the truth is we all say we want honest relationships, but we don't afford ourselves to hear honestly or speak honestly enough. So if you ask anyone, 
you know, man or woman or, you know, any, any situation in any partnership, the response would be, I would want my partner to be honest. I think that would be up there in the top five things that you'd want in your partner. But if your partner honestly tells you, I don't think we should be together anymore. Well, I don't want to hear that. No one wants to hear that. And so it's like, well, then we don't really want honesty. And, we, and again, we don't want honesty because we're not scared of sharing it either. So we're not, also t- we're not giving it or receiving it well. And so it becomes such an invisible value or an invisible quality because it's, it's, it sounds good and feels like it should feel good, but actually it really hurts. It really hurts. It really hurts. I mean, one thing I do know is that at our deepest self, mm. even though we're afraid, we don't want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with us. Mm. So... So I feel that even though it needs to come with all kinds of love, that honesty has to always be the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. Like Mm. Craig will tell you now that it was excruciating when I told him that that I was leaving. But we have realized at this point that like the the truth of the way that things work is that there's no such thing as one-way liberation. Yeah. Right? That if, if, if one person is not doesn't belong there, then you don't belong there either, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and I mean, and I also believe that in terms of what we were talking about with the families, like our people, we want them to be so excited about our, our decisions right away. And, and Jay, that, when you said that, I'm like, that resonates with me. Like if, if I tell you something, I need you to be excited now. now. <laughs> and, and if you're not, it's a betrayal. <laughs> you betrayed. So... That is for sure it. But, but what I think people really, in most relationships that are even semi-healthy, the other person really just wants us to be okay, right? My mom, all of that fear that she had, it was right next to love, right? Like she, she just really wanted me to be okay, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She wanted me to be okay. She wanted the babies to be okay. She wants everyone to be okay. And the thing that I realized is that the only way that we can prove to other people that we are okay, are okay is to just go about being okay. <laughs> right? We can't justify our okayness or explain yeah. our okayness. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Just ex- here's why we're okay. And here's why it's okay. And here's why I get to do this. And I'm a grown woman. And blah, 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 blah. But like really over time, what my mom realized was, oh my God, my little girl is more okay than she's ever been in her life. Mm. And one of the reasons I know that is because she's not justifying it to anybody anymore. Oh, wow. And, wow. and, and I've been lucky enough, you know, that, that we were, we, she did come to us with no fear in her hands anymore. And, you know, at this point, I can say with all honesty that Abby's her favorite of all of her daughters. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the first thing she said to Abby when Abby told her that um, she, Abby was going to propose is my mom said, Abby, I have not seen my daughter this alive since she was 10 years old. Wow. Which is so wild to me, Jay, because 10 is when wow. I disappeared. Right? I mean, I still get goosebumps. Which is, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that I disappeared when I was 10 and something about returning to myself at 42 that my mom could see me alive again? That's incredible. That, that, that statement is so powerful, especially because you see 10 as so formative, as a, as a change. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it's 10, but it's like 8 to 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Tell us that that's when we start to really get it, when we start to really 
internalize these ideas of like, oh, this is how I'm a good girl. This is how I'm a good Christian. This is how I'm a, I'm a Doyle. I'm a American. I'm a whatever it is. And uh, when our cages start to form. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Claire, you're you're incredible. I mean, it's this this conversation has been genuinely on it. I am, and I and I mean this from the sincerest place in my heart. Has been so revelatory for me, just from all I'm doing. And and I really recommend anyone who's been listening or watching this episode go back and listen to it again. And every time Glenn gives a key piece of advice, ask that question to yourself because that's what I'm doing when I'm listening to you. I'm 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 putting myself in your shoes. I'm walking through that phase. I'm asking the questions that you're sharing. I'm, I'm reflecting on my life and where those, and, and just from listening to you and having this conversation with you, I've gained so much clarity and, and kind of like feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of openings have been made just from listening to you speak and having this conversation with you. So I, I want everyone to have that experience who's listening right now. And, and I just, I, I, I genuinely want to say, I, I, I really believe that anyone who reads your work right now is going to get the best uh, writing they possibly can in, in this creative expression of just getting, if, if you know, and I think all of us know it at the deepest core of ourselves that our inner child has been neglected. We, we walked away from who we truly were. We, we disconnected. We've got lost. We've been conditioned, whatever you want to call it. We've been tamed. And it's, if you, if you feel that you need to do some of that work and you want a guide and a companion, then, then please go out and grab this book. Uh, it will, it will, it will gently but powerfully guide you through the steps that you need to take. And I love that balance you have. When I'm hearing you speak, it's like, it's gentle. You're very loving, but at the same time, it's powerful. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's got a lot of strength to it. So thank you for doing what you do. I mean, this is amazing. So I'm going to end with uh, two segments that we do at the end of every interview. It's called fill in the blanks and then the final five. So this is kind of like a rapid fire, quick fire. And I'm going to ask you to answer the next few questions in one word to one, like five words maximum. Uh, so fill in the blanks is I read out a sentence and you fill in the end of the sentence. So if you want to be a great writer. Right. <laughs> good. The secret, the secret to connecting with your community is. Truth telling. Being untamed doesn't mean. Danger. What impresses me the most about humans is their ability to. Forgive. I always say no to. <laughs> um, jogging. <laughs> I love it. Great. I love it. Art is never. <gasps> Fake. Sobriety starts with. Stillness. I knew I was in love with Abby when? I saw her. Oh, beautiful. I love it. Okay, these are your final five. So same. You were brilliant. By the way, I don't think anyone's ever done that that well. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> we've, been, we've been having this long conversation. But okay, so these are your final five. Same thing. One word, maximum five words, ideally. Uh, you're the only one who's ever followed it. So I'm, I'm very impressed right now. Okay, what, did you, you, what have you been chasing previously in, previously in life that you no longer pursue? Perfection. Beautiful. What's one thing you once felt shame and guilt over that you are now proud of? Mm, alcoholism. Recovering. Absolutely. Great question. What was your biggest lesson from the last 12 months? Surrender. The one thing, the one quality that you want to give your children uh, that you'd wish for them to aspire to develop and create? 
courage. Beautiful. And your fifth and final question, if you could create a law that everyone else in the world had to follow, what would it be? Be kind and be brave. It's beautiful. I love it. I'm going to, I wanted to share a passage from your book that I think would help people. So I'm just going to share this uh, from Untamed. It says, my emotions, my intuition, my imagination, my courage, those are the keys to freedom. Those are who we are. Will we be brave enough to unlock ourselves? Will we be brave enough to set ourselves free? We will finally step out of our cages and say to ourselves, to our people and to the world, here I am. Uh, thank you, Glennon, uh, for such an incredible conversation. You've, you've made my week. If not, This is by far one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the podcast. I do not say that every time. Uh, and, and that's not because I don't have incredible guests. I do. But this was just, it just felt, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something really special about this. I'm really excited to meet you in person and give you a big hug when we can. And, I can't wait. I've been wondering why we haven't met before. And it feels like it was because we needed to have this conversation <laughs> this time. Yeah, for sure. But no, I hope that was... I hope that was useful for you and I hope it was a good use of your time. I know that your time is so valuable and precious, so I really genuinely appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you. I, I, I got so much personally from that conversation and I know my audience will absolutely love it. So. Me too. It was my favorite part of the week.